I uh, confess that I've had plastic surgery. And, you know, you don't think you're going to, to want or need to have plastic surgery till one day you maybe get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you just think, oh my gosh, I feel so great, but I look so tired. We are straight talking Southern girls in our 50s, and that's what you're going to get. Welcome to Ladies Roadmap. I'm Joe Jamie Tyler. And I'm Lana Helda. Come along for the ride as we travel and connect with accomplished women and thought-provoking subjects that will motivate and spark you to dream, laugh, and get the most out of your daily life. here today ready to deep dive into the world of plastic surgery with the renowned plastic surgeon, Dr. Ashton Cady of Newport Beach, California. Dr. Cady is certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. He's a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgery and the California Society of Plastic Surgeons. He is also a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. These are all a very big deal, which you'll find out later. And we are so excited to have Dr. Katie with us. Welcome, Welcome, Dr. Katie. Thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be on one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, And so I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to sharing some information with your audience. Well, thank thank you. you. I think women our age are very interested in this topic. And I do want to uh, give a little shout out because we have one of his uh, testimonial patients here right now. And she's looking fabulous, and that would be Miss Jo Jamie Tyler herself. Yep, we're going for the full, full, you know, admission that I've had a facelift <laughs> with Dr. Katie. And going through the process, so many of my friends had been asking me questions about it all, and you know what happened. And so we thought, let's just bring Dr. Katie on, and and we'll just ask you a few of those questions and get all those answered. Looking forward to it. I appreciate it. Yes, and I have seen many other patients of Dr. Katie's, and he does a phenomenal job. Everyone just looks fresh and natural, and that's the key. Because people always say, women will always say, oh, I'm so, you know, someone will say, I'm so afraid of it. I just don't want to look pulled, and I've seen people that look terrible, and I always say to them, well, you notice the ones that that don't look good, but there are so many women out there who have had plastic surgery that you don't even notice, and that's the doctor you want to go to, and you happen to be one of those. Well, thank you for that. Absolutely. You want to look rested, not necessarily pulled, or um, walk into an event, and people look at you because they know you've had something done. There's a lot of exciting things that have happened in the last few years that will that has resulted in these natural types of facelifts, and we can discuss that. Uh, uh, That's definitely something that we want to talk to, so we'll come back to that. Sure. So just to start off with, Dr. Katie, we would love to know, what is your philosophy um, about plastic surgery? I think plastic surgery is a wonderful um, adjunct to everyday life. It is. It involves a variety of procedures from reconstructive that are life-changing to procedures that are um, about building confidence and making you feel good about yourself. My feeling about cosmetic side of the, the plastic surgery, as long as you're healthy, as long as it's done for the right indication, it's a wonderful addition to anything else you do. And it gives you that much self-confidence and makes you feel better about yourself on a day-to-day basis, which I think carries a lot into your daily work and um, your um, everyday life. 
Definitely. Um, I uh, confess as well that I've had some had plastic surgery. And, you know, you don't think you're going to, to want or need to have plastic surgery till one day you maybe get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you just think, oh my gosh, I feel so great, but I look so tired. I mean, that would be one of the things that I think a lot of us women feel. Now I know you do a lot of other plastic surgery, as you said, that's not cosmetic, that would be more medical or if someone were in an accident. But since we're talking to ladies that are in our age group, we thought we'd talk to you a little bit about the things they would want to know about. And we just sort of had one question for you. Um, what is the most common procedure women our age do come in for? It is facial rejuvenation. So any, I would say starting age of 45 and older, you get a variety of patients coming in. To me, it's sort of the perfect storm for the patients who come in. You've got, you know, years of sun damage, extrinsic factors such as, you know, pollution, makeup, in some cases smoking, that have dehydrated and sun damaged their skin. And then you have intrinsic factors, estrogen changes, hormonal changes in their body that have also caused a lot of premature aging. And uh, those two come together in the mid to late 40s and then really become advanced in the early 50s and mid 50s. And so facial rejuvenation is the most common operation or procedure they come in for. And you have different, all, all different levels that you can do as well. But I do think that I have been told that you can't, for example, do your neck without also doing your face. I mean, you have to at least do your lower face with your neck. Is that, is that correct? correct? So patients who come in typically, if they come in at the earlier end of the uh, spectrum, we try and discourage surgery until they really have stronger indications. So usually in their mid-40s, they're coming in for non-invasive procedures, fillers, Botox, um, peels, lasers, those sort of procedures. In the later 40s, they come in and then it starts It starts with the neck, typically with the jowls, and then it goes up to the mid face and then the upper face. So depending on the location and the indications, many times if you're doing the neck, you're correct. You want to at least correct the jowls or the jawline because otherwise there is a transition that will become apparent to, to people around you. If your neck looks great, but the rest of the face hasn't changed, and then people are drawn to that, and they know that you've had something done. So you want to have a little bit of that balance, a little bit of that improvement, transitional improvement as you come up uh, to the lower part of the face, which I think makes this whole process much more natural and rested looking. So speaking on that, what is a good time frame for a woman to consider this? So you're saying it's 45 is the youngest, and how, high, how old do you, can you go before you recommend it. You want to sort of be in this window to have this operation work out really well. And that window is when you have indications such as laxity of skin in your neck, jowls, facial rightits around the, the laugh line areas and the crow's feet areas. When you hit that age, I think, which typically is early 50s, sometimes mid 50s, you're in that window. And you want to do it in that window because the results are not as dramatic. Patients will walk into an event, people come up to them and say, you look better. They can't figure out what has happened, if they've had surgery or not. If you wait too long and let those sort of indications become too severe, where you have too much facial laxity, uh, too many bands in your neck, then obviously the operation will become more dramatic, more drastic. And so as a result, you know, patient will come up and say, ah, oh, you had your face done, your neck done. Right. So to me, that early to mid, possibly late 50s is the ideal um, time frame for having facial operation done. 
I just squeezed in there. You did, just in time, (laughs) just in the nick of time. So how, what do you typically tell your patients as far as their downtime after you have, if you, if you go in for the, the neck and the lower face, say facelift? So A, the pain from this operation is minimal. Um, I will attest to that. Yes, <laughs> I mean, both of us would. Literally, it was not painful at all. No. The painful part was sitting still for extended amount of time. You know, being good, uh, being a cooperative. Absolutely, I think it is. It is a not so much painful operation, but it's a boring operation in terms of recovery because you're sitting at home. So many movies you can watch, so many books you can read. So, and you feel within a week. I think you start feeling better. Certainly by two weeks, you feel like you're out and about and, and feeling back to normal. Um, I would say it takes about two weeks for you to get back into social function, maybe a month before you're ready to get back to exercising, really mm-hmm. about six weeks before you feel like you're recovered and you're back into uh, normal routine activities. And wouldn't you attest to it, Jojamie, because I happened to be Jojamie's nurse for a while after she had this surgery. I'm glad you wait. I'm so glad you just said that because... That could be a really good question. What about who takes care of you and how about... Did we finish answering this question, though, before we Yes, move I think on? so. Sure. Okay. Because I love that idea of somebody does have to take care of you. It's really important. And Lana, Lana agreed to be my nurse, and it yes. was so amazing. And so some of the things that I wanted to show that maybe not everybody knows is that really healthy foods, low-salt foods... Those are things that really, I think, made me Huge. recover so quickly. You want to t- take that Absolutely. A further? Absolutely. Um, a healthy diet following this operation is really key. Um, a, you don't want to have excessive swelling. So anything with salt, anything with MSG or products that raise your blood pressure or, or your swelling are bad for you and you want to avoid those. Protein is really good. So really high protein important. diet high fiber diet, anytime you're on pain medication, it slows down your bowel. So you want to really stay ahead of that. So high fiber, high protein diets are really fantastic postoperatively. They allow a more rapid healing of your wounds. They reduce inflammation by reducing salt. Um, So a healthy diet is really an important part of this recovery. And I think um, in addition to that, having somebody with you to, somebody encouraging to sort of Stay with it, you know, uh, keep you preoccupied. It is that first week sitting at home can be, um, you know. Well, you don't really feel like getting up and cooking yourself something healthy. And Lana had all sorts of yummy soups made. That was really soothing to me. Uh, The broth, the 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 bone broth broth with organic bones. Mm -hmm. Um, Smoothies in the morning. With protein powder. It's just so important. I mean, I agree with you. I think the healing process is just... I think you just expedite it when you really, really focus on what you need to do. And you kind of have to prepare for that ahead of time. You need to make sure you have everything, that you know what you need. Those bullets, uh, those little bullets, the blender bullets are amazing. So all those things matter and, um, and they do, and they do make it easy. But I will say, I watched Jo Jamie and first of all, she looked amazing immediately. I mean, she really did. She looked good the whole time. Yeah. The swelling was Really minimal. minimal right. It, she looked me. amazing. And, and and my other friends who've used you. And so, yeah, it was just a little bit tedious, I think, for them just to wait. And it is a tedious thing. But wow, when you're finished, it is so worth it. The patience that you have, if you'll, have, if you'll be patient and persevere, it is so incredibly worth it. And um, I know Joe Jamie's really thrilled. I am. 
And Joe Jamie was compliant. I think that's another key issue that we ha- we uh, discuss with a lot of the patients. It's very important. I think, in my opinion, a lot of it is what you do during the operation, and then the aftercare becomes even more more important because you want to maintain results. And I think um, not doing too much that first couple of weeks reduces your swelling. Mm-hmm. We have some homeopathic um, uh, you know medications that we have you start, such as arnica, that reduces swelling and reduces bruising that we are very strict with and we have you start, you know, um, before the operation and then continue post-operatively. So, and then you can't really chew with this operation normally for about a week. So you want to have softer food, healthier, softer food, as you mentioned, soups, you know, um, um, vegetables, softer sort of food so that you can get through that first week. Yeah, some fish. Yeah. I think it's great that we're talking about what you really have to do for your recovery. But I also wanted to talk to you. I think it's very important. We wanted to ask you, for anyone who is interested in plastic surgery, uh, what they should be asking their doctors when they go to see them or their in, when they go and interview doctors? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think you start by uh, making sure they're board certified uh, by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. I think that's very important. We have a very rigorous training in terms of becoming plastic surgeons if you've done it the proper way. It involves cer- you know, a certain number of years of general surgical training followed by plastic surgical training. By the time you're done, you've been exposed to all aspects of uh, plastic surgery. So that's very important. A lot of doctors say, I am a plastic surgeon, but when you actually look at their certificates, they're cosmetic surgeons. And a cosmetic surgery uh, certificate is completely different than, than the American Board of Plastic Surgery certificates. You can go and take a course as any kind of specialist, OBGYN, dermatologist, and then at the end of that course be given this cosmetic surgery certificate. That I did doesn't not translate. know this. You know, we'll link to th- these link the proper links so that people can look it up and make sure they, they're understanding this exact certification. I think that's a great Absolutely. point. Absolutely. So number one, you want to make sure they're properly trained, they're certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery, and then you want to ask about their experiences. Um, in my practice, uh, my referrals are word of mouth, and typically doctors referring, patients referring. But if you're going to an office that advertises a lot, you want to make sure that you at least get references to talk to somebody who's had the operation done. Um, because it usually, um, it's a high volume sort of um, apparatus and uh, patient results are not as as critical in those types of marketing settings. So ask a lot of questions about, you know, patients they have done, ask to see photos, ask to maybe talk to previous patients that they've operated on, and then more importantly, make sure they're certified. Super important. I would not go to anyone I hadn't seen with my own eyes some of their patients' results. That is, that I think that's the thing that sold me too. I got to, to meet one, at least one of your patients ahead of time, and Lana knew the other one, so I was really convinced ahead of time that I knew I was going into the right place. Yeah, right away. So I was wondering, you had mentioned earlier um, about how the medical technology has really improved over the years. We're so curious, what what's the newest, latest trend in all this? So a lot is changing. Obviously, you see a lot on TV about cool sculpting, various you know non-invasive procedures. But more importantly, what I see that has changed for the better is in the operating room. We have instrumentations now that are innovative and uh, minimizes the recovery, minimizes the uh, complication rates. We do a lot of things that we used to do by opening things up wide, now using a scope that goes in through a very small incision. We see things on TV monitors better than you can see visually because everything is magnified. 
So a lot of the innovations are actually happening on the level of uh, surgical applications, whether it's lasers. We have lasers now that are, you know, different than the old lasers that we had that changed pigmentation of the skin that caused that porcelain white look to your skin. Lasers today are adjustable, so you can adjust the intensity of the laser based on the area that you're working with. So you don't damage the skin, you don't go too deep, you obtain a more even sort of results. So that technology has improved. And then you have new technology that are coming, um, you know, whether it's in the area of non-invasive fillers and, um, you know, peels, or whether it's in the areas of fat grafting with facial operations where we are now beginning to use more of your own body's fat instead of fillers to enhance areas of your face that have lost volume, not only um, laxity of skin, but actually loss of volume. The fullness, we're, we're right. Replacing that with the fullness, we all had that the fat fullness. grafting. I had a question for you on that. So, of the, when you do the fat grafting, how long does that last? Does it dissipate, or does it just stay there? It, about sixty percent of that fat takes permanently. Oh, okay, so, awesome. Um, the, fat, the nice thing about fat grafting is, and if you do it properly, there is a technique now. One of the innovations, as I mentioned, that uh, has happened in regards to fat grafting is how we prepare the fat. Um, we used to put it in a centrifuge and spin it and basically separated the fat cells from the, the liquid part of the fatty aspirate. And then we used to inject that, except the spinning part, the spinning cycle, killed a lot of the fat cells. So what you injected, only a, you know, a very small percentage mm-hmm. of it actually took. What we have now is a device that we push the fat through that separates the fat without breaking the fat cells, without spinning it or, or fracturing the fat cells. And as a result, you get more pure fat cells with all of the good stem cells intact that you then inject. The uptake of the fat is much better. 60, 70% of the fat you actually inject will take permanently. It has other additional stem cells that actually enhance the quality of your skin. So the areas that you've actually transferred the fat into, the skin on top of those areas have less pigmentation, better, um, um, better um, uh, 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 smoothing of the skin, less larger pores. And so there is an improvement in the actual quality of the skin in addition to the volume that's replaced. Wow. that's a, So let me ask you, can you do that process without, say, someone gets older, Kind of talking about myself later. So you get down the road and you've had your facelift and it's 20 years down the road and you're just, you're, you're not going to, I don't want to do another one, another one, but I wanted to kind of plump up. Would that still work for me? Absolutely. You have if you have been getting fillers and you're tired of fillers mm-hmm. and you're at a point now that you want something other than going in every six months and having fillers put in, fat grafting is an option. Oh. Having said that, you don't want to put fat in areas that have looser skin because you don't want the fat to migrate or fall or not have a good strong support. So typically we do use them in patients who have mostly in the mid facial area, cheeks and those areas because the support there is strong. But you don't want to put it in the laugh lines. You don't want to put it in the lower half of the face if somebody comes in who has facial laxity. Uh, most often what you want to do there is do some tightening procedure and in conjunction with that tightening procedure, add a little bit of fat. Oh, okay. Because otherwise you could put it in the wrong place if some, they went to someone who didn't know what they were doing and then they end up the fats down. Absolutely. Low. That would be You horrible. don't want to use it for lips 
because you really don't have um, any fatty buffer under the lip skin. Your lip skin is special because it attaches to the lip muscles. That's why you see these lines and wrinkles more often. Which we is want, one of our big questions. Yes, what, what can Is there really nothing we can do? These lip lines, I mean... The lip lines are probably the toughest of all uh, problems to solve, and we've tried a number of different things. That's why you hear so many different fillers, so many different options. Unfortunately, there is no magic solution. If the lines are more superficial, lasers, peels, and fillers typically work well. Okay. If the lines are deep, there's really not much we can offer. We've tried different lasers. If you go too deep to get rid of most of those lines, you risk having pigmentation changes Scars. to the upper lips. If you put too much fillers in, you can protrude the lips and have that See, duck lip appearance, yeah, that, yeah, which I think is yeah. a turnoff to a lot of patients. Thank yes, you. thank you. We don't like that. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not fans of that, as you can see. But so would this be? I know people can't see, but these just the little fine lines. Then would the best thing to do be just have another little bit of a peel or something? Do you sure. Think? So for the fine lines, right at the lip, what we call the vermilion border, that pink white junction of the of the lip. The best thing is a combination of perhaps a peel and also a small amount of filler. Okay. When you plump that lip line, you're also plumping away some right, of the fine of lines and wrinkles. It's just so scary when you see the duck lips. <laughs> and this is what, where you don't want to go in with the idea of, you know, um, you, you put as much as you want in there. You, it should be less is more kind of an approach with lips. And I think you put a little bit in, you get the expectations of the patients where they should be. Right. And then do a little bit and then tell them that you probably will need some additional things like a peel, like a laser to further, you know, reduce those lines. And in some cases, you can never reduce or, or get sure. rid of them completely. And you have to openly tell that to the patients. I mean, also. eventually we do. We do have to accept the age a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, well. <laughs> But we're constantly working on things. Every every year that I go to one of these plastics meetings, we have new lasers, new machines, new fillers, more specifically designed for that upper lip. And I think we're going to work and find something. We just don't have that solution right now. It's a combination of small things that we do that are safe. So if you were to say, which, well, maybe you wouldn't want to, but I was going to say, if you were to... to maybe hypothesize what you think the next big change or shift or or newest procedure would be what would you what would you think that would be would you think it would be a non-invasive procedure or do you think it's going to be something that has to do with the surgeries i think the next big thing is not doing one procedure fits all kind of an approach which has been the case for a number of years until very recently and by that i mean you need you have patients who come in you have to do what is indicated. Before we, for example, 10 years ago, if a patient came in, most often we would do a complete facelift, mm -hmm. whether they needed a lower face, mid face or not, because everything we felt went hand in hand. What we're finding now is that you can kind of do different things, non-invasive for certain areas that have more minimal indications right. and more the traditional surgical approach for the stronger indicated areas. And so that balance is now what we're kind of perfecting. And what we're doing in addition to that, as I mentioned with the fat grafting, we're going after one step further. A lot of these surgical interventions help the inside part of your face, you know, whether it's the jowls, whether it's the bands, neck bands. What we're doing, is we're finding ways of improving the outside of your skin 
and improving the uh, the quality and the complexion of your skin at the same time we're improving the inside. So a lot of our innovative technology nowadays is revolving around that that part of it. It's, yes, very complex. Well, speaking of that also, we were going to ask you a little bit about how you feel about the Retin-A. Mm-hmm. Retin-A or retinoic acid is wonderful. It is the um, holy grail of exfoliation and collagen production in your skin. Uh, it increases what happens to women as they get closer to uh, menopause. They have their estrogen level reduced, and as a result, their skin fibroblast cells that produce collagen Think of collagen as these rubber bands in your skin. The more of them that you have, the tighter your skin is. As you age, the number of collagens in your skin drops, and as a result, you lose elasticity. Your skin becomes lax. You develop more lines and wrinkles. Retin-A builds up these collagen stores. It goes in and stimulates these fibroblasts to produce more collagen. And the more you produce, the tighter your skin becomes. It does one additional thing, and that's exfoliating your skin. So what it does, it removes the outer layer of dead skin and dead cells that um, also clog up your pores and add to that premature aging process. So it's a wonderful product. I think something that you have to start at a lower dose. It's irritating to a lot of skin. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to start with the highest dose. You want to start with the lowest dose. And then as your skin conditions over the course of maybe one or two years, you bump it up to the highest level. Okay. And you just have to kind of tough it out through the bit of peeling or whatever. You do. Usually what I do, patients who come in who are really sensitive, I tell them, well, use it once every other day. Mm -hmm. Use it every day. Yeah. Or use smaller amounts. Uh, And then they adjust to it. And over time, over two or three months, they um, adjust to it. And And we should mention that it would be obtained through a prescription of some sort. Retinol, which is the -the over-the-counter equivalent, is 100 times less potent than retinoic acid or retin-A. Right. So anything you get over the counter is not really retin, uh, retinoic acid. It has to go through your skin, be converted to retinoic oh. acid to take effect. Got it. So it's a little bit of a waste of money. It's a little bit of a waste of money. <laughs> or maybe a what lot. you apply as retin A or retinoic acid mm-hmm. is pure retinoic acid. That's hundred times you know uh, stronger, and as a result, you need a prescription for it. Got it. And you can get that from a dermatologist or your plastic surgeon or. Probably even your, I don't know, do do. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, anybody who's into non-invasive cosmetic procedures, um, including peels, or now mm-hmm. giving out retin-A, it's retin-A. very common. So, uh, speaking of the skin again, is there a limit on how many chemical peels a person should have? Yes and no. <clears throat> Depending on how thin their skin is and what sort of reactions they've had to previous peels. So if they come in once every year or once every other year wanting a peel and they haven't had any issues with their previous peel and the indications are there and no pigmentation issues in the past, then it's safe to do that. And we have patients who come in once every couple of years for a maintenance peel. Mm -hmm. You can also adjust the peel. So you don't have to put one, you know, the strongest peel on every time you're doing the peel. If you come in and you feel the sun-damaged areas are less, you can downgrade the peel to something a little bit less than the strongest you have. So customizing the peel is, I think, what allows us to use it more often. And I think that's patients. so important because it does. It keeps those fine lines and those little 
sun, even, I mean, I'm a big hat wearer because I've had skin issues because I'm so fair and I always wear a hat. I always have my sunscreen on. And even, even with all of that, I still, am, you know, here and there getting little, little spots. So that's the stuff the peel really helps with. Absolutely. The peel is appealing. <laughs> yes, the peel like is that. appealing. Right. There you go. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so we just want to wrap up with one more question. And of that course. would be, what would be your best advice you would give a woman in, 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 your, in that range, that 45 to late 50s, who's contemplating a facelift, um, what would just be the best advice you would give her if she was out there getting ready to look for something? I, I think, you know, start um, early your search into what's involved to do this. I think, you know, um, when you feel like you have certain areas that are concerning you more, Go in with the idea of addressing those areas and don't go in with this idea, whatever is recommended, I'm going to do. Sometimes you get into these offices and they end up with a laundry list of things to have done. And sometimes the timing for those procedures are not correct or the patient is not mentally ready to have those additional operations done. So I think having a good expectations going in, having a, a good indication for those procedures you're looking to have done, and then, as I mentioned, researching your surgeon, researching, you know, the uh, reputation of your surgeon is very important. And I think, you know, as you get into your mid-40s, you also want to pay attention to the skincare part of this whole formula. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of surgery kind of sets the clock back, but then you want to maintain the clock going forward. And if you can start that clock, start that skincare maintenance early in your mid, mid-40s and really be uh, vigilant about it, when you have the operation, it's easy to go back to that to maintain it going forward. So I think, you know, start searching early, skincare in your mid-40s, and then um, when you get into the office to discuss your operation, look at photos and ask for references. Right, and I think the best advice we could give young people is try to protect your skin from the sun. I, I gave a talk um, um, a couple of years back, and what we did is we had pictures of moms and daughters. You can tell a lot about pictures of mothers and daughters. If you look at the daughters and you look at the mothers and what has happened in their 40s and 50s, you can kind of create a roadmap where you can see where, you know, you're heading and when you should start that skincare, when you should start certain procedures that are preventative. Because you don't want to have that first first surgical uh, procedure for as long as possible. So doing things to maintain and prevent uh, that surgical operation is important. So look at your mom's photos in their 40s and 30s. Get an idea of when this whole process does start for me. And kind of be proactive about it. Those are the tips. That, that is such great advice. I mean, That's we need to make me. sure that our... Our girls are yes. taking care of their skin. Yes. Well, I harp on it because I have had the melanomas and whatnot, but that is great advice. And, you know, I just, um, every time I see you, I'm, I'm more and more and more impressed. And I just, you know, think you do an amazing job. And I give your name out a lot, just so you know. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, you both are wonderful. And, I'm, I'm honored to be part of this program and to be able to share some of this information with people out there. I know there is a lot of misinformation, so it's good to to have any uh, of these addressed. And those were great questions. Good. good. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else you would want to impart that maybe we didn't talk about? 
I think that covered a lot of that, at least facial rejuvenation part of this. Yeah, I think it did. And maybe, if you don't mind, maybe we'd have you back another time and talk about another topic that's important to ladies, because I can think of a bunch, but we won't go there now because we'd keep you for too long. But thank you again. I would love that. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you so much. It was great. Would you like to hear about our recommended product of the week? Sure you would. So come on over to ladiesroadmap.com and sign up for our newsletter. It's not to be missed. You'll get our current happenings on Ladies Roadmap and Ladies Roadmap Journal. Don't forget to sign up. Thank you for listening to Ladies Roadmap. And until next week, remember, the greatest part of a road trip isn't arriving at your destination. It's all the wild stuff that happens in between. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Just go to ladiesroadmap.com and click on podcast. It's as easy as that. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Ladies Roadmap. And you know what else? We would love to hear from you. Feel free to email us at info at ladiesroadmap.com. We'd like to give a shout out to our amazing music producer, Cam Tyler, at litloops.com. 